You may be seated. Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I'd like to begin today by having all of you engage in a little bit of time travel with me. All right, so at some point in your academic career, maybe in junior high, maybe in high school, it's likely that you read a particular novel, a story about a little boy who grows up in poverty. He's an orphan. He's raised by his, his malicious sister and his, uh, his sort of doting brother-in-law who suddenly finds himself the subject of great expectations. <laughs> See what I did there? And having become the recipient of these, this benefactor's attention, the boy is transferred to London, where he is to be trained in law and then to become a gentleman, okay? And the whole story is really about that transformation. It's about this boy coming of age. It's about the development of virtue in the midst of a vicious world. And along the way, the young boy, Pip, is his name. He meets all these notable characters. But perhaps my favorite, and the reason I bring it up today, is a clerk in the law office where he works named Mr. John Wimmick, whom Pip describes as, I love this, he describes him as having a square wooden face whose expression seemed to have been imperfectly chipped out with a dull-edged chisel. Dickens had a way with words. Now, Wimmick is one of uh, Charles Dickens' strangest creation. He's a split man. As Pip gets to know him, the realization dawns on him that there are, in fact, two versions of Mr. Wimmick. There's the one that works as the law clerk with Mr. Jaggers, who's hard-nosed and calculating, completely incapable of warmth or friendship. And then there's the man that Pip encounters at his home, who is uh, generous and silly. He's gregarious. He cares for his aging parent. He's engaged in courting this lovely young woman. And the character of Wimmick is fascinating. But there's one particular exchange which highlights what I want to point out about him. There's a certain point in the story where Pip has another friend who's in these dire straits, and Wimmick has become for Pip a sort of guide. And Pip goes to him and says, how, how can I best help my friend? And Wimmick's response, if you don't remember, it's, it's shocking. He says, choose your bridge, Mr. Pip, and take a walk upon your bridge and pitch your money into the Thames over the center arch of your bridge, and you know the end of it. In other words, it would be better to throw your money into the river than to try to use it to help a friend, because who knows where that's going to end. Pitt presses him again, and Wimmick responds that this is his considered opinion in the office, and that if Pip is trying to ask about his opinion elsewhere, he should go meet Wimmick elsewhere. Pip notes, I realized that there were twin Wimmicks, and this was the wrong one. Now, Wimmick is an absurd character, right? He's, but what makes Wimmick absurd is not unique to Dickensian literature. It's not unique to London or British society. It's, in fact, a co it's common to our experience. What Wimmick exemplifies and what makes him work as a character is a kind of split existence. The sociologist Max Weber described the modern person as living a life according to different and at times competing spheres of influence competing domains. You have your work domain. You, you might have your political domain. You might have your family domain. And each of these domains has its own logic, its own way of organizing the world and making sense of things, its own values, its own, what Weber says, its own God. 
And the plight of modern humanity is to try to satisfy them all, to bounce back and forth, to give our business opinions at the office and our religious opinions at the church. And like a waiter serving too many tables, running back and forth, back and forth, trying to keep everyone separate and happy. But the problem is you can't keep them separate. You are not separate. And these domains, these fears are ever expanding and all encompassing and trying to satisfy both will tear you apart. And at some point, they will make competing demands, and you have to choose. But take care. The moment you decide, the moment you commit yourself, is the moment you realize that your freedom is not absolute. You try to turn to the Lord, and, and yet you feel something pulling on you, tugging at you. And the strength of that pull is increased the more you have invested in the other way of life, the other way of thinking. Have you ever noticed that, that your, your dependence upon something becomes more pronounced the moment you get good at it? The moment the accolades, the bonuses, the recognition begins to roll in is the moment that that thing that you happen to do becomes the thing you do. You begin to identify with it. And its logic, its rationale become your logic and your rationale, the way that you think about the world. And so we, we come to an answer. I haven't posed the question yet, but it may have been at the back of your mind. Why does God single out the rich? Why does this theme come up so much in Scripture? Look at the lessons for today. Look at Amos. Woe to you who are at ease, who lay on ivory beds. Look at the gospel lesson. It's all a story about Lazarus and the rich man, right? And then we come to our Timothy passage. What are these texts about? Why does the Holy Spirit throughout the scripture continually caution the wealthy? I think the answer to that is actually the same thing that Father Daniel said last week. We're in this series on Timothy, and, and last week he talked about Paul's motivation. And the week before he talked about Paul's motivation. It's the same principle that drives Paul to write about those in political authority, to write about those who are teaching falsehoods. The Holy Spirit, writing through Paul in 1 Timothy, singles out the rich because God desires their salvation. He desires the salvation of all, including the rich. And if, as you come to these passages, you experience a certain tension, you experience a pulling, an anxiety, what is God asking me to do? What does he want of me? That's actually good. That's the right response to this passage. The point of the scripture here is to highlight that you are living in a torn existence. As our Lord said, you can't get by that way. You can't get by serving two masters. You'll be torn in the middle. Living that way is a recipe for anguish, and futility and suffering. But if that's the case, what are we to do? What, if we are so deeply invested over here, how are we to follow the Lord? What help is there for us? Well, as we look at the first Timothy lesson today, we see four things. Paul has some guidance. He, we see two warnings and then two commandments. There's a warning against pride and a warning against false hope. And then there's a commandment to put your hope in the Lord and, to, and a commandment to charity. So let's talk about pride first. What's, what's going on here? Paul says, instruct those who are rich not to be haughty. Literally, not to be high-minded. It's not to think of themselves as better than others. St. Ambrose of Milan, an early church father, pointed out that there's this pattern. He says the wealthy are tempted to believe that somehow their wealth, over time, they're tempted to start thinking of their wealth as a reward for their own sagacity their own wisdom or, or right judgment. 
And, and isn't that the truth? How, how often do we see that in ourselves, that our wealth, our savings account, our financial security somehow over time becomes for us an index of our own morality, of our own good decision-making, of how good of a job we've done. And once we've gotten there, how short of a step is it to begin thinking of the lack of wealth, the lack of savings, the lack of security in others as somehow a, a, an index of how poor of a job they've done. That's the great American myth, right? That the idea that somehow you've made yourself, you've supported yourself, you've given birth to yourself. How often do the, the successes that we experience become our successes? They become something that we've done. How often does wealth whisper back to us and justify itself? Look what I've done. Look how wise my investments have paid off. One time I was reading a book. I, I happened to flip to the acknowledgement section. Usually the acknowledgement section is kind of lengthy in a book, but this was just one line. It said something to the effect of, I'd like to thank the person who got me here, myself. I just remember thinking, this is bizarre. But then immediately afterwards thinking, how crushing it is. How crushing of an existence, how lonely of an existence would it be if the whispers of pride were true and you had only yourself to thank. Paul is reminding his readers to be on guard against the lies of wealth, the lies that begin, as St. Augustine says, to whisper to you, to entice you to this view that you are somehow sufficient for yourself, that you somehow created your own success. In short, a lie that bids you to fail to see that God has given you everything that you have, not for yourself, but for the sake of those around you. Now, the second thing that Paul is concerned about is that as we begin, as we become wrapped up in the lies of wealth, we begin to be more and more dependent upon securing more wealth. There's a paradox here, but remember that wealth is this totalizing sphere, right? It doesn't stay in its own pocket. It continues to expand, to demand more and more of you. It demands your complete devotion. And who has ever had enough of it? Ask yourself, when, when have you ever felt safe enough with the security that you had built. Instead, we find ourselves drawn further and further in. The more you earn, the more you become aware of how much you stand to lose. The more invested, the more anxious you are to protect that investment. It's the very logic, if you will, the very organizing principle of wealth, to need more, to safeguard what you have. And because of that, it's inexhaustible. To be controlled by the domain of wealth is to be consumed by a life of anxiety and fear. Now, can I, I want to pause real quick. Can I say a word to parents here? Because sometimes the devil likes to come in through the back door on this. There's a particular vulnerability when it comes to your kids. We, we keep thinking as parents, I have to make more money so that I can send my kids to a good school or I can give them this or that experience so that they will have a good life. And if I don't send them to one of the best schools, if I don't give them these great experiences or the right clothes or whatever, then they're not going to have a good life, right? But, but don't we know that deep down that that's backwards? Wealth doesn't make for a good life. Experiences don't make for a good life. The good life is the one that's lived in the fear and love of the Lord. And if anything, our anxious pursuit of wealth for our children risks the opposite. The more wealth someone accumulates, the more tempted they are to think of themselves as sufficient. 
Is it any wonder that the church is strongest in those parts of the world that are the poorest, while it limps, limps along in a sort of diseased state here in the U.S. and in Europe where we have all of this wealth? Christianity from its beginning has existed for the poor and continues for the poor, and only the poor find it. Is it good to want good things for your children? Absolutely. Is it good to provide for your family? Yes, and indeed it's a commandment. But don't get sucked into the lie. Don't confuse providing for your family where money is a resource for an end with the dominion of money where money becomes its own end, its own good, its own God, where the goal ceases to be the flourishing of others and becomes just the attainment for yourself or for your children of more and more status symbols, more and more degrees or letters at the end of your name, more and more leisure at the end of the day a domain where the worm never dies and is never satisfied. But what are we to do? How do we move forward if we're so trapped in this? If it's everywhere that we go, it's in the air that we breathe. How can we live in the world and yet be saved from this temptation? Remember, Paul is writing for the sake of the rich. He's writing for their salvation. But what hope is there for we who live in this world torn between God and money? It won't do to just try to maintain the status quo. You can't put money in its box and keep it there and keep God over here. Right? I said earlier the problem with these domains is that they're constantly getting out of the box. They're constantly expanding. Paul knows that it's not enough to just try to contain wealth, that that won't work. You can't serve both. You can't appease both. No, if we're going to be saved from the death brought about by the dominion of wealth, we have to bring it under the kingdom of God. It has to be brought inside the kingdom and made to work according to the kingdom's logic. So what is the logic of the kingdom of God? Remember earlier I said that the logic of money is to take, to keep, to guard, to hold close. What about the kingdom? It's right there in the text. It's the next place Paul goes. Instruct the rich to set their hope on the God who richly provides. To put their hope in the God who gives. Two things here. First, something practical. And then something more expansive. First, the moment anyone talks about giving, there's this voice that pops up in the back of my head. You might have it too. And it, it, it gets anxious. It says, but what if I don't have enough? How much am I supposed to give? What if all of the need out there just exhausts me and I'm left empty? If you have a voice like that, what I want you to notice first is what Paul, what I want you to notice is what Paul says first. He doesn't begin with you. He doesn't begin with your giving. Children of God, does your father love you? That's the question. Children of God, does your father love you? Isn't that really the question being asked? Do I matter enough to God that he'll take care of me? And isn't the answer that God has already given you everything? Remember, Paul is writing this from prison. He's not being flippant about suffering or about the possibility of need. But hasn't God already given you his very self, his very essence and being? What more could there be? In what other way could he promise you that he loves you? And here's the second point. The logic of the kingdom, the way in which the kingdom is organized, has nothing to do with holding on to power or security or careful investments. The logic of the kingdom is reception and then giving. 
We have received everything from God because God gives. That's the very nature of God. The Father gives life to all things. The Son gives his life for the sake of all things. The Holy Spirit is given to enliven the children of God. Do you hear it there? The giving over and over and over. It's in the very DNA of the kingdom. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. All that God does is a gift from the Father to the Son, which the Son returns, gives back to the Father, transformed by the Spirit. And how does the Father return it? How does the Son return it to the Father? By giving his very life. And how is it transformed? By the giving of the Holy Spirit. The logic of the, logic of the kingdom is reception and giving. It is the very breathing in and breathing out of the life that Christ has given us. Paul says, put your hope there. Invest your direction, the orientation of your life there in that pattern. And then when you've done that, you come to the second and final command. Paul says something very practical here. Those instruct those who are rich in this life also to give. God is the giver of all things, right? There's a link there that is absolute in the text. God gives and we give in response. Paul wants you to understand that your giving is a response to what your father has already done. As I said, that's the very logic of the kingdom. And this is the key difference between the kingdom of wealth and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of wealth says to hoard, to secure, to grasp after, to protect. The kingdom of God says that if you seek your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life, you will find it. Do you see the difference there? I was talking with someone earlier this week. We were talking about the great figures in the history of the church, those that we, we hold up as exemplars, and we say we should, we should mimic the way that they have worked in the kingdom. What do they have in common? We're tempted to think that they've added something. We're tempted to think that they've accrued more piety or, or more spiritual disciplines, but that they've done more things. But that's not it. Those, those things have their value, right? I'm not knocking them, but they're not sufficient. All of the spiritual disciplines in the world will not get you into the kingdom of God. No, what's common between the saints is the degree to which they've emptied themselves. The degree to which they gave themselves away to the work of God and so took hold of the life of God. To live in the kingdom is to respond to the gift by giving yourself. Now, as we close today, I, I'm tempted to leave you with something pragmatic, a, a next step you could take. Hey, if your giving is here, here's the goal. Maybe get here by December or, you know, the beginning of the year. But that's, that's not really the way it works, is it? And, and for some, I'm afraid that for some, that's become a way, that way of thinking has become a way of trying to cut a deal with God. Here's your percentage trying to maintain a balance between these two worlds. If, if there's any sort of maxim that we could apply, then it's probably the one provided by C.S. Lewis, who said, the only safe rule is to give more than you can spare. That you should continually give such that you feel pinched by it. Like I said, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. If you need a guide, start there. But there's another picture I'd like to leave you with, one that maybe balances the wisdom in that with an understanding of the initiative in the kingdom, how the kingdom works. 
We don't go out to meet God with our gifts. That's the issue there. We don't go out and meet God. We respond freely to the gift of himself that God has given us. And so when I think of responding to the gift of God, I think of the story of Mary, the mother of our Lord. You remember the story in the, in, at the very beginning of the gospel, the angel comes to her and says, God is going to save his creation by becoming one of his, uh, by becoming himself a, a human, by taking on flesh. What is Mary's response? She doesn't respond by counting the cost, adding it up, thinking about her security or her future. Instead, she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you've said. And later as she goes forward, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. You see, what what happens when she gives herself over completely to the will of God is in that moment, Mary becomes the first Christian. She becomes the first of all of fallen humanity to receive the presence of the Lord and to be transformed by it. So as you go forward, may your giving be like Mary's. May it follow the logic of the kingdom where we respond to the love of God. And in giving up yourself, may you find yourself filled with the presence of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.